Well, church family, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 14 as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis, Genesis 14. And I want to share with you today, we do have people in the room. If you're watching online, you're wondering, what are those folks doing there? How did they get a head start on us? Well, we, uh, we decided to allow our staff and their families to get a preview, also to help us prepare in advance of your arrival uh, next weekend. So if I'm preaching to people, it's because I am. You're wondering, who's he preaching to? Well, I'm preaching to people, uh, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do that this morning. And I hope you're registered for next week, and, and you're getting set up to participate with you. We're preparing as best we can. I know many of you are praying whether or not it's the right time to return, and we're praying with you. Um, But for those of you that prayerfully consider and decide to come, we're going to be prepared for you, and it's going to be a great weekend. Well, this is uh, Pentecost Sunday, a time when we celebrate the pouring out of God's Spirit upon His people, those apostles as they proclaim the gospel. And certainly, I think today in the life of our nation, we uh, desperately need an outpouring uh, of God's Spirit. And so before we even go to the Word this morning, I want to lead us in a specific Uh, time of prayer for our nation. Certainly we are in a very sad place. And though um, I have not watched the full video of what occurred on the streets of Minneapolis, I couldn't, quite honestly, I couldn't stomach it. But I saw enough to know that the death of George Floyd was inexcusable. It was senseless. It was sickening. And it was heartbreaking. You as a church family know that I don't often deviate and just simply start addressing the issues of the day from this pulpit. But I have sought the Lord in prayer over this issue, and I cannot remain silent. For me to do so at this point, I believe, would be me being disobedient to the Lord. I have often taught my boys that it's not enough to see a wrong and walk away. You've got to call it what it is and take action when you are able. Certainly, we support our police, our men and women who serve us. We have policemen and women in our congregation. We love them, and they seek to be a light for Christ in our community. But we must also call sin a sin. The issues that our nation is facing today, they're not primarily cultural, and they're primarily not biblical or political. They are biblical issues. This is about the justice of God. This is about the dignity of every individual made in the image of God. We are, as a church, we are unapologetically pro-life. We are pro-life regardless of what you look like, where you are from, your abilities or your disabilities, regardless of your race or your gender, regardless of your bank account or your background. We are unapologetically pro-life from conception to the grave. And we cannot take a stand when a baby, we cannot take a strong stand when a baby is senselessly murdered in the womb and then simply turn a blind eye when African-American men are murdered on our streets. Racism in every form is a sin. And it derives itself from the father of lies, Satan himself. And church family, it is up to us to show the world a better way. We must be God's change agents. And what does the Lord require of us? Well, he tells us in Micah Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. We must preach Christ, but we must also live Christ. 
to love as he loved and to serve as he served, knowing that Jesus is still the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. And so with that in mind, as we've been doing, I'm going to go on my knees before the Lord. If you're physically able, I would encourage you to join me this morning. But let us go before the Lord and ask him for a fresh anointing upon his people in our nation today. Lord, as we humbly bow before you this morning, we recognize that Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is with Satan and his kingdom of wickedness and division and destruction. And Lord, we know that he is ultimately a defeated foe and his reign and influence in this world is temporary we know one day Satan will fully and finally be put down and his work and influence in this world will be over but Lord from this day to that let us be warriors for you in this world fighting not by physical means but by spiritual means in our uh, in our time of prayer in the study of your word I pray that we would put on the spiritual armor of God Lord I pray that you would search our hearts you would remove sin you would correct us change us so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Lord, we're praying that you would bring about revival in this nation. And God, we pray that you would bring it into our own individual hearts first. In the midst of this day, with all the struggles that we are facing, I pray that we would commit ourselves fully and totally to Christ to be his representatives in this world. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for knowing that you are with us and in the end we will prevail through faith in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Genesis 14 this morning. You remember as we're studying Abraham, Romans 4 tells us that he is the father of all those who believe. He is our example of what it means to live a life of faith. And we've learned that true faith is a tested faith. That those who seek to walk a life of faith with God are going to face tests. They're going to face trials. And that's what we're, we're seeing in Abraham's life uh, really, from chapters 12 through chapter 23, Abraham is going to start out at 75. He's going to, in chapter 23, be about 130 to 135 years old. So you've got a span of about 60 years. And he's going to undergo about 12 different tests that we're going to see in, in the life of Abraham. Some of which he brings upon himself. A lot of which just happen upon him. Some that he just, he just wanders into and there he finds himself fighting for faith and 
and growing in his faith. It reminded me of the small volunteer fire department out in the country. And the volunteer fire department, it just simply consisted of an old 63 Chevy pickup truck. And in the back of that pickup truck, they had some barrels of water and some blankets. And so one day there was this grass fire that was spreading and They had called out a lot of fire departments, and they just put the word out, if you've got a volunteer fire department, bring them, we could use the help. So here comes this little small fire department and their 63 Chevy truck, and they're flying out to race to fight this fire, and they show up on the scene in that 63 Chevy, and they run right past all the other fire trucks. They run right past all the officials. They run right through all the barricades, and they run right into the middle of this fire. And all of a sudden, these firemen jump out. They're throwing barrels of water, and they're grabbing blankets and trying to put this. And other people, other fire departments, they see it, and they rush in there, and they start working. And eventually, they get the whole fire put out. And after it's over, the, uh, the, the landowner comes up to this guy who's the head of this local volunteer fire department and says, I have never seen anything like that. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. In fact, I'm so grateful. I'm going to hand you a check right here for $1,000. The guy said, man, I'm so grateful. And the guy, I, I can't help but ask, but well, how are you going to use that $1,000? He said, I'm going to tell you, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to fix the brakes on that truck. Sometimes we just find ourselves in a trial, don't we? We just find ourselves in the midst of a a fiery battle. And we're just fighting to make it out alive. Well, Abraham has found himself in a series of trials. And what is God doing in the midst of those trials? He's growing his faith. He's teaching him that he can trust God. He's bringing Abraham to a place where he finds all of his sufficiency in God alone. And, and here's what we know. What God does in Abraham's life, he's going to do in our life, isn't it? That's, what, that's the way God works. Oftentimes our lives are a series of tests. And what is God doing? It's similar to tests in a school. Why do we, why do we have tests in a school? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but tests were the only reason I ever studied. <laughs> because I knew there was a test coming and I was going to get a grade. And it forced me to grow and it forced me to learn. God gives us tests to grow us. And uh, he's teaching us to trust him. See, God knows that true spiritual growth, our, our faith doesn't grow just by scripture memorization. I mean, that's important. Don't ever let, me, uh, let you hear me diminish scripture memorization. That's so important. But what do we know? Scripture memorization alone doesn't equal greater faith. It's not until God puts us in a test or a trial and we're forced to use that scripture that we've been memorizing that our faith grows. As I like to say our faith doesn't grow in the lecture hall. It grows in the lab of life. And I would almost guarantee those of you that have your, your favorite verses, I would almost guarantee this, your favorite verses in the world are those verses that you leaned upon the most heavily during trials. Well, Abraham, he's finding himself in trials. God's growing his faith, molding him and shaping him into the man, this great leader that he's going to be. And so when we look here in chapter 14, this chapter is often overlooked in Abraham's schooling of faith. But it's a significant chapter. and teaches us a lot about who God is calling us to be. So we're going to see in this chapter God has changed Abraham in several ways. 
Uh, I, in the first service, I tried to read the first 10 verses, and I butchered about every name in there, all right? So I'm just going to give you the lowdown on what occurs in those first 10 or 11 verses, and then we're going to pick up the story there. Essentially, you know this. Lot went to live in Sodom, didn't he? He, he lifted up his eyes. His values were bad. His eyes were bad. And on the basis of bad values, he made bad decisions, and now he finds himself in a bad, a bad situation, a bad place. And when you live in Sodom, bad things happen. So there he is living in Sodom, and Sodom is under the, the control of a king named Ketala Omar. And Ketala Omar, he is, along with some other kings, they rule over these other regions, and they've ruled over them. They've oppressed them for 12 years. Well, in the 13th year, the king of Sodom and all these other regions, they decide we don't like his rule anymore. We're going to rebel against him. And so they rebel, and there's a battle. And Ketala Omar, he whips them. He kills them. And then, and then they're, they're dispersed, and, and Ketala Omar takes all the goods, and he takes all the people that he can. And guess what? He ends up taking Abraham's nephew, Lot and his family captive. So now, do you get this? He's made a bad decision, finds himself in a bad place, and now he is captive to an evil king. So pick up the story with me in verse 11. It says, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram uh, the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, uh, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner, and their allies, uh, and they, these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Let's pray together. God, we ask this morning that you would bless the study of your word. God, enliven our hearts to the truths and the principles of this, this passage and this text. And God, I pray that we would apply them to our lives, that we might not simply be hearers of the word, but doers also. Speak, Lord, through the power of your spirit to your servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God is, is forming, he's molding Abraham. And I think in this text we see at least three ways in which God has formed Abraham. Number one, the first thing that I see is that Abraham has been changed by the grace of God. This is a man who has been changed by the grace of God. So uh, think about this with me for a second. Lot, his nephew, has been captured. He has been taken prisoner because he made bad decisions on the basis of bad values. So bad values, bad decisions, now he's found himself in a bad Bad place. In other words, this is not Abraham's fight. This is not Abraham's uh, problem. This is Lot's problem. And it's a result of Lot's own bad decisions. So here would be my question to you this morning. If you were Abraham and you got a nice place of peace and serenity and you're doing well and you find out Lot and you're probably thinking, I, I knew this was going to happen. Because that's what happens when you start traveling down that road. I'm sure Abraham, well, he, he, that, that, I, no surprise to me. 
But if you're Abraham in that situation, are you picking up your stuff, grabbing your men, and running out and putting your life on the line for an individual named Lot who's done nothing but mooch off your life? And now he finds himself in a bad spot and needs help. Are you going out after him? Now, I don't know about you, but when I thought about that, I thought, probably not. I'm thinking to myself, let him, he made his bed, let's let him lie in it for a little bit. At least for a year or two. <laughs> let's let him learn some lessons about choices and, and values and decisions. But that's not the response of Abraham. Abraham, in this moment, in this instance, he responds immediately. His heart is, is, is moved towards Lot and he He just finds himself all of a sudden drawn into this battle. Now, why in the world would Abraham do this? Well, here's what I believe. I believe Abraham's going to get involved because Abraham has been changed by the grace of God. You see, we're not too far removed from chapter 12, are we? We're not too far removed from Abraham's own Egyptian experience, are we? It wasn't that long ago when Abram made a bad decision based on bad values and found himself in a bad place, and what happened? And God graciously intervened on his behalf, not because Abraham had done anything right or good, but God, simply on the basis of his grace, restrained Abraham, protected Abraham, and at the right moment, let him out by the hand and graciously restored Abraham. And I think Abraham's thinking to himself, if God would be that gracious towards me, how can I not be that gracious towards my nephew Lot? See, here's the principle. Those who have been changed by the grace of God tend to be quick to extend the grace of God. The great danger for us, I think this is a great danger for all of us, is that we would get so far removed from the moment of salvation that we'd start to think that we're something. We start to think, boy, look at us. We got it all figured out. And then what happens? We become Pharisees and we, we start to get a little high-minded. And then when you get high-minded, you start looking down on all these other loser sinners. See, they, they're just not smart like me. They ain't got it figured out like me. And we become cold-hearted. And we become calloused towards people who fall into sin and find themselves in bad situations. Now, I'm not here to tell you that in every situation we're to go in there and bail them out like Abraham does in this instance with Lot, but God, help us to never get to a place where the grace of God goes sour in our lives and we don't have compassionate hearts towards those who have fallen into sin because but by the grace of God, there go I, and only by the grace of God am I at where I'm at today. God, help us as people who have been marked and changed by God's grace to demonstrate it towards those who fall into sin. In other words, don't forget where you came from. You know, if you've ever been camping for a length of period of time, you realize that um, the first day or so you realize you stink. But after a few days, what happens? 
It's called olfactory atrophy. It means your nose goes dead. And you can no longer smell your own stench. Listen, if we're not careful as Christians, we get olfactory atrophy in a spiritual sense. You know how you prevent this? You prevent this by getting in God's word on a regular basis and asking him to reveal sin. You know what you're doing? You're getting downwind of yourself and you're smelling your own stench. And you're reminded that you haven't made it either. And your life is nothing apart from the grace of God. So Abram, he's been changed by the grace of God. Not only that, but he's been strengthened as as a warrior. Uh, I was talking to uh, Carlos Brewer before the service, and he was asking me what chapter we're in. And he was saying, you know, um, Abraham, David is often thought as a great warrior. but, But Abraham, not necessarily thought as a great warrior. Abraham is a great warrior. Now, he doesn't have a warrior background. But man, he's a great warrior. And so here he is. It's the first real battle. In fact, this is the first real battle we see in Scripture. And Abraham goes out to battle. And who is he battling for? Is Abraham in a battle to protect his own ground? Is Abraham battling for himself? Is he out there battling to protect his own stuff? Is he battling to protect his own prosperity? Is he battling to protect his own advantage? No. He enters into a battle for someone else. And really, to me, it's one of the great marks of great men and women of faith is that they're often going to battle not to protect themselves, but to protect other people. They're not battling for their own advantage, but for the spiritual well-being of another person. And you see Lot in this situation, and Lot, it appears at this moment, doesn't even have the ability to pray for himself. Lot, at this moment, it appears he's got no real interest in spiritual things. I mean, this guy has gone off the deep end. And to some extent, the only hope he has is a relative who is going to battle on his behalf. Now, isn't this a powerful picture for all of us? Because I would imagine there are many of you today who praise God for an Abraham in your life when you were not walking with God, you had no interest in spiritual things, you were going off the deep end, but there was somebody in a spiritual battle on a daily basis for your own spiritual well-being when you didn't even know it was going on. And you might even be willing to say, I would never be where I am today were it not for that individual every day going on their knees on my behalf when I didn't even have the wherewithal to pray for myself. Now, on the other hand, we all have some lots in our life, don't we? Boy, I pray for a lot of you as parents. I know many of you, and right now you're battling spiritually on behalf of children who are not walking with the Lord, and it almost appears they've got no spiritual interest. And I think that one of the most powerful pictures of Abram in this situation is he never gives up on Lot. 
I mean, what's amazing about this, he's going to bail Lot out. And where does Lot go? He's going to go right back to Sodom. And in chapter 18, what are we going to find Abraham doing again? He's having, it's really the first prayer that we see in Scripture. And Abraham is praying, battling before God on behalf of Lot. God has informed Abram, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to wipe them out. And you remember, Abraham goes to God and says, if you find 60, would you save the city? God says, well, if I find 60, I'll save. How about 50? Don't you love Abraham? How about, God, I know I'm overcooking the grits here, but can, can I get 30? But he just won't give up. Because I love Lot. And he don't even know what he's doing right now. But I'm pleading with you, God, save him. Any of you praying those prayers right now on behalf of children or grandchildren, aunts or uncles, brothers or sisters? And boy, it feels like every time you kind of bail them out or they get out of the situation, they go right back into the ditch. And can I just encourage you today, don't ever give up. That's the kind of prayer life that God responds to. Not the prayer that throws up a little quick blessing over the meal and then walks away and never seeks God, but the one who goes to battle every day on their knees on behalf of those who cannot or will not pray for themselves. What a powerful picture of Abraham being shaped into a mighty warrior. Now, now we've just talked about that in spiritual terms, but make no mistake about this battle. This battle is not imaginary. It's a real battle. Abraham's going to put on real armor. He's going to go to a real battle. He's going to achieve a real victory. But that is, that is also a great point for us that even though we may not put on physical arms and go to battle in that kind of way, and even though oftentimes we cannot physically see the battle with our eyes, we are in no less a real spiritual battle today. I truly believe, and you see this at, great, at different points, Elijah and his servant Gehazi, and Elijah prays, peel back his eyes so he can see what's going around, and he sees the army of God around him, and he sees the spiritual battle. I believe if God could peel back our eyes for just a brief moment this morning, and we were able to see the spiritual battle that's going on around us, you couldn't keep us off our knees. And until you get to the place of realizing that you are in a spiritual battle, you will never grow on in maturity in your walk of faith with God. You are in a battle. As you wake up every day, you are fighting for your spiritual life and the spiritual life of others whether you know it or not. And you better be putting on the armor of God. Oh, man, men and women of faith are always being strengthened as warriors. And notice, too, we got to move on. But he, he goes into that battle confidently, doesn't he? He just throws caution to the wind. Earlier in chapter 12, he's like throwing his wife underneath the bus to save his own hide. All of a sudden now, he's like, get the weapons, boys. He, 318 men, they've never been in a battle in their life. Ketel Omar's already won a couple battles. I mean, what's happened to this guy? Why all of a sudden did he become brave? You know why he became brave? Because he realized God always comes through on his promises. He didn't have to worry about dying of famine in the promised land because God already promised, I'm going to make you a great nation. He's not going to die. 
he knows that God's promise, he goes into that battle. I love it. He's going in. I'm invincible. They can't hurt me. God's already told me I'm going to. Listen, if God promised you Saturday, you don't have to worry about Friday. And listen, God has made us some great promises that regardless of what happens to us in this world, through faith in Christ Jesus, we have an inheritance coming to us that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. So for me to live in Christ and to die is gain. God's made me some real promises. So all I got to worry about is being faithful to him, and I don't have to worry about what's going on in this world. I can go into this great spiritual battle with a lot of confidence because I already know the end of the story. I know that God wins in the end. So as long as I'm on his team, I'm going to be just fine. So Abraham, he goes in with a lot of confidence. Boy, strengthened as a warrior. Then the final thing we see is he's settled in his, uh, his motivation, the motivation of his life. Look at verses 17 through 24 really briefly. Then after his return from the defeat of Ketalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavad, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, God of most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now this is interesting because you see two kings, Abraham wins, I mean, incredible victory. You, you can imagine he was the underdog. It's the talk of the town. He's on ESPN. I mean, this is the news. How in the world did this guy with 318 men who've never been in a battle, how'd they win this deal? And these kings are now coming out. You know, now he's popular. Abraham was probably a nobody prior to this. Now all of a sudden, you know, he's taken number one spot. He knocked off the number one ranked team. And so now everybody, they're, 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 they're talking. And so these kings are coming out to greet him. And two kings come, King of Sodom, and we'll get to him in just a minute. But then King, this, this Melchizedek, and he's a mysterious king. Um, he's mysterious in a lot of ways, but the one way that really sticks out about Melchizedek is, is that Melchizedek um, functions in two offices at the same time. Only individual. In the Old Testament, we see function in both these offices. He is both a priest and a king. In fact, the author of Hebrews spends an entire chapter talking about Jesus as our great high priest, and when he told the Hebrews that Jesus was our great high priest, they had a problem with that. Why? Because Jesus doesn't come from the line of Aaron. How could he be a priest? How could he be a great priest? Author Hebrews says, that's okay. He comes from Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because Abraham is going to give a tenth to Melchizedek and Aaron is still in his loins. So in that way, Aaron was bowing down to Melchizedek who's a greater high priest. But whatever way you see, he brings this bread and this wine, a meager offering. But what does that remind us of? Lord's Supper. Who do we see here? This king and this priest who offers bread and wine. What we're seeing here is a prefiguring of Christ. This is God's representative. He is king of Salem. Many believe king of Jerusalem. So here's the city of God represented by, by God's king. Here he is at Abraham. He blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth and receives his offering. But then the king of Sodom comes. Look at the king of Sodom, what he does. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Ener, Eschol, Mamre, let them take their share. So the king of Sodom, he comes out too, and he's making a bargain. But make no mistake about it, he's got a hidden agenda. 
Scripture tells us about being careful about sitting at the table of kings. Proverbs talks a lot about that. Because sometimes they have a hidden agenda, don't they? That they want to wine and dine you. Why? Because they want some leverage in your life. See, what, what, what the king of Sodom is doing here, he's like, I'll give you the stuff. Take it, Abram. And he knows now if he does this, Abraham can say, well, God made me rich. But what would king of Sodom say? Well, not really. I gave it to you. And now Abram would owe him one. Now Abraham would have some level of loyalty to Sodom and he would be robbing God of some of his glory. So do you see the picture? You've got, you got two kings and two cities vying for Abraham's heart. You've got the, the God represented by Melchizedek and the city of God and you've got Satan represented by Sodom and the city of this world and they're vying for Abraham's heart. Who will he be loyal to? Who, where will his allegiance fall? Is it going to fall with Satan and the world or God? And do you notice what Abraham says in verse 22? He says, I have sworn, meaning Abraham made a previous commitment that now is dictating his present decisions. In other words, Abraham, prior to this moment, had already decided, God, my life allegiance is totally to you, and I know I'm going to win this battle, and when I do, I'm not going to take any of the stuff because I don't want anybody telling me that, that they made me rich. I want to be able to say, only God gets the glory, and he is the one who has given me the victory. It's such a, it's such a powerful picture for us that we need to make up our mind where our allegiance lies before we find ourselves in the moment. Because can you imagine, this was probably a pretty big temptation. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. He's a, he's a man, isn't he? I mean, come on, don't, don't you want stuff? I mean, some, some king thrusts out all this stuff in front of you. Pretty tempting, isn't it? But the temptation was lessened. Why? Because he'd already made up his mind. And the important lesson for us is, let's make up our mind where our allegiance lies. That the stuff of this world and money and material things, those aren't going to motivate us. The one thing that will motivate us is allegiance to God. That I'd rather have God than bread, God than stuff. That even as Job said, yet though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jesus, when he was tempted with bread, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus was saying to Satan, I got to have obedience to God more than I got to have food. And when the line is drawn, I'll always choose God, and I won't get caught robbing any of his glory. Now, what's powerful, we're not supposed to get into chapter 15, but look at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your, great, your, your reward shall be great. So picture this. Abram, he's probably scared to death at this point. I mean, he turned down a lot of money. He's probably thinking, did... Did the ship just sail, and now I'm destined to a life of poverty for God? That's okay. He says, I made God my portion, but he's probably wondering that. And he also knows, I've just ticked off a whole bunch of kings because I'm not going to play their games. I'm not going to get involved in their stuff. They're probably going to hate me, and they're probably going to come after me. I now got a target on my back. And in that moment that Abraham has said his commitment, now he had already made the commitment, but it was proved out in the moment. And when he did it, isn't it powerful that God comes to him and says, Abraham, you don't have to be afraid. I'll be your shield. Isn't that awesome? Not, not I'll make you a shield. Not I'll provide a shield for you. Abraham, I'm shield. Listen to me. God is saying to Abraham, listen, brother, you, you cling to me. 
And anything in your life has to come through me first. Isn't that a comforting fact? That when we just follow in the footsteps of God and we're submissive to him, God says, before they touch you, they have to mess with me. Boy, it's a powerful thing. Such a freeing thing to give ourselves completely to God knowing he'll be our shield. He'll protect us. And then not only will I be your shield, he says, your reward will be great. Now, there's different translations here, and I, I rarely differ with the New American Standard Translation, which is what I study from, but, but in this instance, I don't agree with the translation. I think the better translation is, I will be your great reward. He's saying to Abraham, you just turned down a lot of money, but what you gain in me makes all that stuff look like rubbish. And those of us who know God know that to be true. Amen? What we gain in Christ and God makes all of that stuff pale in comparison. As I said last week, Abraham is caught up in the glory of God. When you get caught up in the glory of God, all the trinkets of this world, they become less attractive. They're imitation. But you know what's really unique about this? What's really awesome about this? Does God not make Abraham incredibly wealthy? Oh, yeah, Abraham's going to become incredibly wealthy. But the issue of Abraham's allegiance has already been settled. Do you know why I believe God sometimes just pours out immense wealth on certain people? Because he knows he can trust them. They've already settled the allegiance. I know where they stand. It's not about stuff. It's not about what you possess. It's about what possesses you. Abraham has settled it. Can I ask you this morning as we close? Have you been changed by grace? If you're not demonstrating grace to other people, if you don't have a compassionate heart towards those who have fallen into sin, what I would question is, do you know the grace of God at all in your life? Those who know the grace of God, they can't help but extend grace towards others. It may look differently in different situations, but our heart is gracious towards them. Secondly, who are you battling for spiritually today? And can I just encourage you, don't give up. And then finally, as spiritual warriors, let's settle the allegiance of our hearts. Let's make up our mind today so when the lights come on and we're in the moment, the temptation won't be so great because we already know where we stand. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that is so clear. God, what a blessing to know you've spoken to us and you have showed us how to live. And God, I pray that we'd be a people of grace. And God, I pray if there's never anybody who's had a first experience of your grace, as the, uh, Paul said in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Maybe there's somebody here that's never known the grace of God initially in their life. They've never recognized they're a sinner and that they could never get to you on their own. But in light of the great salvation you've provided, they, they trusted in you. They trusted in Christ and him alone for their salvation. And the grace of God was extended to their, to their life. And they knew rebirth and, and, and new life through faith in Christ. God, I pray if there's somebody that's never experienced that, I pray today would be the day of their spiritual birth by grace through faith. God, I pray that we who have experienced your grace would extend your grace. God, I pray that you would grow us as spiritual warriors, that we would be very much aware of the fact that today as we go out into this world, we're in a spiritual battle. 
And we take up arms on our knees in prayer and in the study of your word against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. We battle on behalf of other people in their faith. We never give up on those individuals in our lives, those lots who seem to always make bad decisions, who seem to always fall in the ditches. God, give us compassionate hearts and let us battle in prayer for them. And prayerfully, what would be said of them is what is said of Lot, that even though he had a tough life, He was a righteous man. Partly and probably mostly because Abraham battled for him. God, let us battle for others and let us settle the allegiance of our heart today that we will be driven by one thing, and that is faithfulness to you, knowing you will be our shield and you are our portion. You are our reward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.